Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Eric Smith and Matt Godfrey to discuss the life and work of Joseph Smith in celebration of the 191st anniversary of the founding of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Both Eric and Matt work as managers and general editors of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Along with Matt Grow, they compiled and edited the recently released anthology, No Brother Joseph, New Perspectives on Joseph Smith's Life and Character. Welcome, Eric and Matt. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. It's great to see you both. And Matt, although you're one of only two guests who've been interviewed on Latter-day Saint Perspectives three times, counting this one, this is the first time we'll be discussing the primary focus of your historical research. Can you tell us a little bit about your job as a general editor of the Joseph Smith Papers Project? Sure. Yeah, so I've been with the project for a little over 10 years now. It's been a wonderful experience. I've been able to kind of wear several different hats with the project. So I started out as a historian and documentary editor, which means that I work on the various volumes within the project. And like our other historians, I'll get assigned documents to work on. Our primary goal with these documents is to make them so that they are understandable to readers. So we write historical introductions that place the documents in their historical context so that readers will be able to know why these documents were produced, when they were produced. And then within the document, if there are people or places or ideas that may not be familiar to a reader, then we provide annotation to those. So we do a lot of research to provide those introductions and that annotation. Because one of the primary purposes of the Joseph Smith Papers is to provide accurate transcripts of his papers, we do three levels of verification of the transcriptions that we have to make sure that they're as accurate as possible. And what we call our third level verification efforts, we call the actual document down to our office, we look at the document and compare it with the transcript, examine the document, and so I I do that as well. So I have all of that as kind of my historian, documentary editor work. Then as the managing historian of the project, I'm over the uh, 15 historians that we have working on the project. And I also participate in the management team of the Joseph Smith Papers with Eric and uh, a few others within the uh, project. And so we're responsible for making kind of day-to-day decisions about how the project operates. So that's kind of my managing historian hat. And then my general editor hat, uh, along with Eric and Macro and Ron Esplin, we try to read through everything that's produced for the project before it's released, before it's published, to make sure that we have a project voice that's maintained, and just to make sure that the products are of the highest standard possible. Do you feel like you've achieved that? We've received overwhelmingly positive reviews um, in academic journals. I think scholars are pleased with the work. I think they think that it's accurate, that it's objective, and that it's a good resource. Put this in perspective. 
what other 19th century American religious leaders have received similar attention? Yeah, that's a great question. So documentary editing as a field is something that's been going on for many years. Back in the 1940s at Princeton University, they started the Thomas Jefferson Papers, and that was kind of the first, I think, large-scale documentary editing project, which is still going on. So this is, what, 70 years later, and they're still working on Thomas Jefferson's Papers. And they have similar projects for the founding fathers of the United States, George Washington, uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, James Madison, all have papers projects. And that's kind of what we were trying to model the Joseph Smith papers after was these founding father projects. In terms of American religious leaders, one of the prominent documentary editing projects was the papers of Jonathan Edwards, uh, which was, uh, I think, done by Yale University. And that's been kind of a good example for us to follow, too. We've consulted with the editors on that as we've gone forward to work on the Joseph Smith papers. Just on a personal note, you had a good job before you took this job with the Joseph Smith papers. You were actually a professional historian doing history work. And those jobs are not just everywhere. But you chose to leave that job to come to the Joseph Smith papers project. What drew you to this project? I did have a good job before this. I was a historical consultant living in Montana and doing a lot of enjoyable work for the federal government and some private entities, and it was a lot of fun. But I've always been interested in church history. Uh, my father, you know, has a PhD in history. He studied Joseph Smith for most of his career. My mother has a master's degree in history. She's done a lot with Utah history. So it was kind of just always around me. And as I kind of went forward in my graduate studies, my dissertation for my PhD was on a Latter-day Saint history topic, not Joseph Smith. It was a 20th century topic with the sugar industry. But I've always kind of had an interest in Latter-day Saint history. And that coupled with, you know, my wife and I wanting to get our family back to Utah so that we could be closer to our family. I think those were really the driving forces behind it, as well as just knowing what kind of a landmark project the Joseph Smith Papers was and wanting to be part of something like that. Eric, as the editorial manager and general editor, how did you come to the Joseph Smith Papers project? By the way, thanks for interviewing us. I think I've listened to the majority of the podcasts that you've published on LDS Perspectives, and I feel kind of like when people call into a radio show for the first time, they say, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> That's great. I started working for the church about 20 years ago in what was called the curriculum department. It doesn't exist anymore. And my first major assignment was to help edit with another editor named Susan Hainsworth, the collection of Joseph Smith's teachings that was later published as Teachings of Presence of the Church Joseph Smith. So I had this amazing opportunity to study and edit and publish Joseph Smith's teachings, a job that took about six years of full-time work. After uh, that project was over, my boss contacted Ron Espelin in the Joseph Smith Papers and asked if there was any work that I could do as an editor for the project. I didn't realize that the project had just moved up from BYU to the Church History Department about a year before that. 
And nor did I realize that Ron was very opportunistic at taking any kind of resource that became available to him, whether it was a, a missionary or an editor or an, any kind of person that became available. And so I was enlisted to help with the editing at that time. So I've been working for the Joseph Smith Papers for about 15 years. I formally transferred over to the Church History Department in 2010. Some people that are listening to us talking now might not realize how large the staff of the Joseph Smith Papers is. In addition to the 15 historians that Matt mentioned, we have about 20 full-time editors. Plus, we have a number of missionaries and volunteers who support the project. We need that many people in order to publish two print volumes a year, plus a comprehensive website. Two books a year might not sound like that much, but most of the other documentary editing projects, like the ones Matt has talked about, publish at a pace of one volume per year, and sometimes not even that. And very few of them have have a meaningful website like we do. Because our project sponsors, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Miller family, didn't want us to take 50 or 70 years to publish all of Joseph's papers, they have given us a lot more funding than most of these documentary projects enjoy. So that's allowed us to go at the pace that we're at. While Matt is the managing historian, I help manage the people who do the editorial work. With the help of Nathan Waite and Riley Lorimer, I oversee work like editing, source checking, and proofreading, and typesetting, and web publishing. And we're also involved quite a bit with outreach to other departments and with publicity. So I spend probably about half my time editing and about half my time doing management tasks of various kinds. Right now, I'm what's called the second editor on Documents Volume 14. And that's one of our final volumes that we're working on. That's going to get us up to mid-May 1844, only six weeks before Joseph is killed. So we have another editor that works on that full-time, and I read behind her and support her. And another thing I'm working on these days is reviewing all of the legal materials that we're publishing on the website. So those are a couple of examples of editorial work that I'm involved in right now. You guys have a pretty busy day job. Where did the idea for this book originate? The short answer is that we wanted to take all these awesome findings that we've published in the Joseph Smith papers over the years and make them available to a general Latter-day Saint audience. But let me flesh that out a little bit. As you know, Laura, the Joseph Smith papers, volumes, and website are aimed at scholars. In fact, early in the project's history, a question went up to the First Presidency whether we should be targeting scholars or church members with these books. And they decided that our primary audience should be scholars with members of the church being a secondary audience. So that decision obviously has a significant effect on the way that we write and the way that we market the volumes. As Matt was saying, the volumes have been extraordinarily successful. We have published more than 200,000 copies of our print volumes. And last year, the Joseph Smith Papers website had more than 3 million page views with about 650,000 total unique visitors. So obviously, for us to have that many people buying the books and that many people visiting the website means that we're getting a lot of church members as consumers. We have also been able to collaborate really closely with other church departments so that the papers are used in other products for church members. For example, you've probably seen a guidebook that was published a few months ago called Historical Resources, Doctrine and Covenants. It lines up with the Come, Follow Me curriculum for 2021. 
so that if you are supposed to teach week seven or week 11, you can look at this list of resources and it provides you links to a lot of historical materials, including to the Joe Smith papers. Now, this is a little bit different than what you guys did four years ago. The resource I just mentioned, again, it's called Historical Resources, Doctrine and Covenants. It's in the Gospel Library app. And whatever is in the Gospel Library app on your phone is also available on the website if you go to churchofjesuschrist.org. It's identical content in the Gospel Library, whether you're on your phone or on your laptop or your PC. The other publication that you mentioned from a few years ago is called Revelations in Context. And most of the chapters in that were written by people who were working on the Joseph Smith Papers. And that, too, is available in the Gospel Library app. So I have a funny story that illustrates the point about why we wanted to do this book called No Brother Joseph. After Journals Volume 1 was published, my wife and I gave a copy of that book as a gift to my wife's parents. And then the next year, 2009, our second book came out called Revelations and Translations, Volume 1. And my wife and I gave a copy of that to my wife's parents as well. And I think maybe we gave them one more book. And at some point, we went to them and said, you know, we've been giving you these Joseph Smith Papers volumes. Is this the kind of gift you guys would like to keep receiving? And they said, no. Her parents are members of the church, and they love to read, but they just couldn't get their arms around. How do you use this book that's meant for scholars? The books were never designed to be read cover to cover like a novel. The idea is typically that you might be working on a particular theme or a particular time period, and you'd open to the relevant documents. Even though we know members are buying the volumes and using the Joe Smith Papers website a lot, that's not reaching probably the majority of members. And so that was the genesis behind this book, No Brother Joseph. We wanted to make available some of the research from the Joe Smith Papers and other recent scholarly publications to a general Latter-day Saint audience. The idea we had was, instead of having long scholarly articles that might be 30 or 40 pages long, we could have these short essays that are only about four pages in print. And that would require the writers to focus in on just one topic or event from Joseph Smith's life. We wanted each chapter to kind of be like if you went to a devotional that was given by a historian. So the historian would present historical information, but in a faith-promoting context. And you might even get some personal application. That was something that I thought was important for the book. I do firesides fairly frequently about Joseph Smith, and I'm almost invariably asked how his working on this project affected your testimony of Joseph Smith. One of the ideas that I had for the book is it would be useful to have people who have really engaged with Joseph Smith papers talk about how that as a Latter-day Saint has help them come to know Joseph better, or what kind of insights that they've gained about Joseph Smith. That was one of the ideas behind it, too, kind of the personal application. Let's talk about the contributors to this anthology. Of course, as editors, you both wrote chapters, and also your third editor is uh, Matt Grow, and he contributed to uh, co-authoring a couple of chapters. First, there are 41, right? 41 essays in this book. And I knew that it was going to be a blend of scholars and not so much scholars, but people who had researched and used the papers and maybe were writers. But I was kind of glad that you guys did not go to the same 
scholars that are typically approached for these types of essays? You kind of went outside of the box. Yeah, I think we looked to try to get people from a variety of backgrounds. And we certainly wanted to have people who had worked on the Joseph Smith papers contribute essays to this volume because, of course, they've spent a lot of their career delving deeply into Joseph Smith's life. So we wanted to give them an opportunity to do this as well. But just for myself, you know, there are people that I've come into contact with who work for the church or who work for BYU or who are independent scholars that I know are deeply interested in Joseph Smith and have done great work on Joseph Smith. And so we wanted to try to get uh, those people as well. And I think Eric knows a, a bit more about the backgrounds of everyone. After we got the green light from Deseret Book to go ahead and prepare a manuscript, Matt Groh and Matt Godfrey and I kind of divided up who we thought we might contact. So Matt Groh contacted people he was better acquainted with and so on and so forth. We probably asked 50 or 60 people to write essays. So we got responses from 41 people, which we were thrilled with. The other people had other commitments, but we gave everyone the deadline, which was not very far off, and we gave them a limit of 1,500 words for their essays. But as far as choosing their topic, the idea was that they were supposed to choose something that was of personal interest to them. What's really cool about that is I think you can feel the enthusiasm that people have for the specific topics that they chose. After someone chose their topic, but of course, before they had turned their essay in, they would let us know what they were writing on. And amazingly, there weren't any two essays that were on the same theme. Now, we did get four that cover the first vision, but I know you've read the book, and they actually all come at it from these completely different angles. In fact, two of them are about the recording of the first vision rather than focused so much on the, the events themselves. One example from the book of where someone's enthusiasm shines through for me is an essay written by Petra Javadi Evans. Petra, long before we ever knew her, was going to college and she decided to start a family. And so she stopped pursuing her bachelor's degree. And many years later, she decided to go back to college. So a few years ago, she got her bachelor's degree. And after that, she applied for an open editor position that we had with the Joseph Smith Papers. And if you know Petra at all from the workplace, you know how much she loves to learn. She's very ambitious. She's super quick study. In fact, she's going to graduate school this fall, even though she's working full-time and raising a family. So her essay is one about Joseph Smith's love of learning. And I could just feel in that her own enthusiasm for learning. Another example of that comes from the essay that was written by Scott Hales. Matt and I are lucky to work with Scott in the publications division. Scott has a PhD in creative writing, and he's actually the lead writer for the Saints Project. And he chose to write about Joseph Smith's writing and Joseph Smith's histories. So it's kind of this meta take where we have a writer of history, Scott Hales, analyzing another writer of history, Joseph Smith. And that's a kind of essay you wouldn't get if you hadn't asked someone like Scott Hales to write it. That's not a traditional kind of point that I think a historian would write about. So those are a couple of examples of some of the types of people that contributed who aren't historians. Oh, and Scott Hale's essay in particular, he talks about Joseph Smith's storytelling ability. 
I can just see Scott reflecting on his own experience over the last, I don't know, five, six years working on saints as he's had to take a body of history and put it in a palatable form for mainstream audiences and see what Joseph Smith did and to get insights into his personality from that. In the preface, you say, we have followed Joseph Smith seemingly every step from the Palmyra of his youth to Carthage. We are among the small group of individuals who have read every word in the Joseph Smith Papers print edition, most of them many times. As the lead editor, yeah, I might read the same book 10 or 15 times. Ouch. I consider it a privilege today to speak to you about Joseph Smith and about this new volume. With so much knowledge, I feel like we could stay here for hours and talk. I also felt honored to be asked to contribute an essay to this anthology, one little piece of it. We're glad you did. It's a terrific essay. Well, yeah, for sure. I really feel like I probably was number 50 who was asked, <laughs> just in case everybody else said no. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> Eric, having learned so much about the life of Joseph Smith from your work on the Joseph Smith papers, how has your view of Joseph Smith changed as you've worked on this anthology? As you mentioned before, the project is very academic, yet you've asked these contributors to tell you personally how this information has affected them. I haven't learned a whole bunch of new information necessarily, but what I've learned is more kind of spiritual or emotional. You see how these stories that are pretty familiar, to me anyway, from having worked on the project for so long, have deeply affected someone's life. An example of this comes from the essay that Claire Haney wrote. Claire is a historian in the church history department, and she is related to Zina Huntington, and she wanted to write something about Zina. So when she was exploring what she wanted to write about with respect to her ancestor, Zina, she decided that she would write about different situations when Joseph Smith teaches doctrine in order to console people. So Zina is dealing with the death of her own mother in 1839. And according to records that come much later, Joseph Smith goes to Zina and says, you'll see your mother again. And in fact, when you get to heaven, you're going to meet our mother in heaven. So that's one example of when Joseph Smith teaches doctrine to console people who are going through difficult times. So I knew that story about where the doctrine of mother in heaven comes from, but to see the personal application to Claire, because that's her own grandmother, affected me, as well as the fact that she put it together with these other stories that illustrate Joseph Smith teaching consoling doctrines in these difficult times. Another essay that struck me really hard in the same way was is one that was written by Casey Olson. Casey has a long career in seminaries and institutes, so he's a very gifted teacher. I think we're all familiar with those verses later in Joseph Smith's history as canonized in the Pearl of Great Price, where Joseph compares himself to Paul, and he says, I'd had a vision, and I knew it, and God knew it, and I couldn't deny it. Casey talks about how those lines were written in 1838 when Joseph Smith was facing so much persecution. 
he had had to flee from Ohio because of persecution. There's something about the way Casey analyzes the history and those words of Joseph Smith that made the uh, story just come alive for me. I had read those those words from Joseph many times, but I really felt their power. And I also provide a, an example that struck me very hard, and that was uh, Nate Waite's essay where he just kind of takes a day in the life of Joseph Smith and talks a lot about you know what Joseph Smith was doing on that day. He's extrapolating what Joseph Smith is doing from Joseph's journal entry for the day. And I've read that journal entry many times. And one of Nate's points that he makes towards the end of the essay is that you see Joseph throughout the day taking care of church business, taking care of Nauvoo city business, trying to deal with a variety of problems. And then at the very end of that entry, it says you know, essentially went out and slid with Frederick on the ice. And Frederick, of course, is Joseph's son. The way that Nate set up that essay, it just really struck me that here you have Joseph trying to lead the church, trying to lead the city of Nauvoo, and yet he loves his children and his family so much that he takes the time out of his busy schedule to play with his son. And it seems like a really minor point, but for some reason that just really had an impact on me about what Joseph was like as a father, that he really loved his children and wanted to spend time with them. When I was discussing this book with my husband as we were kind of going over some of the essays, one of the thoughts that came to us is that this all happened a long time ago. It was a different time, a different place. And even when you're in the Joseph Smith papers, as you mentioned, reading his journal, some of this information is just so static and mundane. It's hard to get an idea of how life really was and how to identify with that. When you're reading these papers and you, you learn about the establishment of the church, it becomes very apparent that within Joseph Smith's ministry, his charisma was a moving force. But this quality doesn't necessarily translate well through history. How do, how do you bottle up charisma and express that? And I want to share a quote from the essay written by Cherry Bushman Silver. She was writing about Emmeline Wells' first encounter with Joseph Smith. Emmeline recorded, She knew the moment he stepped upon the platform and she saw his magnificent presence and the influence he brought with him upon the whole congregation that he was, in very deed, a prophet of God. So many of the early saints had those types of experiences that we don't have now. And, and we, we can't partake of that same experience. I don't know if you guys want to address this. I think Joseph Smith, like some of the other people in our U.S. history, have taken a little bit of a hit over the last 20 years. Even with the abundance of information that has become available, there's also been an abundance of lack of context, maybe, and empathy and charity towards these historical figures. 
In fact, I would even say that Joseph Smith is kind of been canceled in some circles. Would you agree? You can see that. We definitely live in a society that tends not to give people the benefit of the doubt, especially with authority figures, tends to judge them pretty harshly. You can kind of see almost a polarization of Joseph Smith that has occurred, where on the one side, you know, you have people who look at him and say he's a complete imposter, you know, did nothing good, was just after power and after his own personal gain throughout his life. But then you also have people on the other side who kind of regard him as perfect and never made a mistake, never messed up. And so you have kind of these two opposite ends of the spectrum about Joseph Smith. And I don't think either one really is fair to Joseph. And I don't think either one takes into account that human beings are complex people, we're complicated, life is messy, and you can be both a prophet of God and still make mistakes because nobody's perfect on the earth and nobody has been perfect besides Jesus Christ. It's important to kind of take into consideration that Joseph isn't just a caricature, that he's not just the evil villain or the perfect saint, but that he's a real person. And I think that's one thing that the Joseph Smith Papers helps us to see. You have to dig kind of deeply, like you were saying, because sometimes it doesn't translate in, in the written word. But I think as you read his correspondence, as you read his journals, as you read how he interacts with people, what he cares about, how he goes about his life, then I think that brings in this idea that he really was a human person who felt human emotion, who dealt with the experiences that we all deal with in life. You know, he had days that were mundane. He had stretches that were mundane. You know, he was sick. His family was sick part of the time. He had children die. He had friends turn against him. He dealt with all of these things, and yet he was still able to be the prophet of the restoration. And I think that's a much fairer depiction of Joseph Smith, that he's human trying to do the best that he can with what God has called him to do. There are times when Joseph looks simple on the surface, or there might be a situation where there's something that looks like was odd, but when you get underneath in the documents and the papers, and you do a more detailed study, you find that something that seemed simple was more complex, or you find that something that seemed odd on the surface actually has a justification of some kind. An example of the latter, when something at first seems odd, but actually makes sense, comes from the interview you did fairly recently with Mark Ashurst McGee. Mark, who's a historian with the Joseph Smith Papers, and Don Bradley, an independent historian, have done a lot of work on the Kinderhook plates. These were these metal plates that were a complete hoax, as you know, that had fake inscriptions on them, and they were brought to Joseph Smith, and we know from the historical record that Joseph made some attempt to translate them. In the 19th century, as Mark related to you, church members tended to believe that this was evidence that Joseph had the gift of translation because he had translated these plates that were brought to him. Well, near the end of that century, it's proven beyond any doubt that the plates were a complete hoax. And after that point, the prevailing narrative became that Joseph had been duped 
and this becomes a stain on, on his reputation, that he had translated something that was a hoax. But now Mark and Don have looked into it, and it appears that they've gotten to the very bottom of it, and they've concluded that Joseph translated only a single character from the Kinderhook plates, and he wasn't doing it by spiritual translation at all. He saw this one character that looked familiar to him, and he looked at the Kirtland Egyptian and grammar that he had prepared years earlier using like secular or logical means of translation, and he saw that the character resembled something he had worked on earlier. So he said that that was the translation of that one character. So he wasn't he wasn't trying to act like a prophet at all. He wasn't doing spiritual translation. That, to me, is an example of how when we learn more, I think it tends to vindicate Joseph Smith. There's lots of areas that I don't think we're ever going to learn more about now. There just aren't the records that exist. But my own feeling is that if we knew more about some of these things, the evidence would support the way Joseph told the story. I'm not saying that we're going to find out that he was perfect, but I think if we knew all the forces that he was dealing with and all the factors and we knew what he had said and we had more of those records, I think it would support him more. So my tendency from having worked on the papers is to give him the benefit of the doubt when there's some ambiguity. I think you two have touched on an important point. I do think there are those polar dichotomies, but I also think people, faithful people in the church, have a complex relationship with Joseph Smith. But we we maybe do tend to attribute simple or shallow motivations behind his behavior sometimes when maybe it is more complex than at first we can tell. And like Eric said, we don't have the complete record. We have a lot of records on a lot of things, but not a lot of records on the things we want to know most about, perhaps. We're okay with Joseph not being perfect. We still wish he had done and said different things that we don't understand right now. One of the goals of this collection, as you stated in your preface, was to provide insights into Joseph's life, personality, and character to help us in this complex relationship we have. In the essay, The Lonely Soul of Joseph Smith by Chase Kirkham, the author pulls these concepts together as he beckons modern readers to look upon the prophet's life with charity and also to appreciate how Joseph's loneliness helped him seek for truth. First of all, Chase, thank you for writing this chapter. Definitely one of my favorites. Chase notes, Joseph was a lonely soul who struggled to understand how to fulfill God's will. Do you think this dynamic is obvious in the historical record? I think it is. You know, there, there's kind of different levels to this. Certainly on the surface, you would not say that Joseph was a lonely person. You know, he was a very gregarious person. He had a lot of friends. He loved being around people. But there's something, I think, about being a prophet and having experienced the things that he experienced that other people hadn't experienced that did make him at times feel lonely. You know, when he says in 1844, uh, April 1844, in the General Conference, that no man knows my history, I think that's kind of what he was touching on, that, you know, I've experienced these great 
visions and visitations, and I've tried to convey them to you, but I don't know that you really get what it's like to be me and to have experienced this and to try to do the things that the Lord has asked me to do. And I think that can be a very kind of lonely feeling that no one really kind of understands what you've gone through. And I think he did have periods, as Chase points out, especially in Liberty Jail, where he felt lonely because he wasn't sure if God was, you know, really looking after him at the time. You know, that's why he cries out in Liberty Jail, Oh God, where art thou? Because he sees all the suffering that the saints have just gone through in Missouri. And even as a prophet, you know, he feels for these people. He feels for himself because he's in prison. And he feels like he shouldn't be in prison. There's no reason for him to be here. And so he's kind of wondering where God is at this time. And I think that's something that a lot of us can relate to. At least I know I've had moments where I've prayed and it doesn't seem like God's giving me an answer. And that can be a very lonely feeling because you start to wonder, am I not worthy of an answer? Did I do something that made God mad and now he doesn't want to answer me? And so to know that even Joseph went through these types of experiences where God felt distant and he had to kind of work through that, I think that helps me when I'm dealing with those those times as well. Eric, you talked about how if you get into the document, you find out more about church history. Do you think that knowing and understanding church history is always faith-promoting? That's a very deep and complex question. The way I'd like to start my answer to that is by reading a quotation from Elder Marlon K. Jensen. For those that don't remember, Elder Jensen was the church historian and recorder for a number of years during the time the Joseph Smith papers were being published. And he said the following in 2012. This is a longer quote, so bear with me. Elder Jensen said, Regrettably, in this technological age where information abounds, some of it critical of events and people in the church's history, some Latter-day Saints become shaken in their faith and begin to question long-held beliefs. To such questioning individuals, I extend love and understanding and the assurance that if they will abide by gospel principles and prayerfully pursue their study of church history, studying sufficiently to gain a more comprehensive rather than a fragmentary or incomplete knowledge, the Holy Ghost will confirm their faith in the essential events in church history by speaking peace to their minds. In this way, they can become settled in their convictions concerning the history of the restored church and be no more carried about with every wind of doctrine. He says, I have staked the course of my entire life on just such feelings of peace concerning Joseph Smith's first vision and other seminal events of the restored gospel, as have many of you, and I know we will never be disappointed. End quote. So, parsing that out, Elder Jensen is suggesting that we can obtain a testimony of the essential events in church history. Not every event, but the essential ones. And part of what that might mean to me is, am I ever going to obtain a testimony about plural marriage? I don't know. I think the most I could hope for in my testimony with regard to a, a difficult doctrine like that would be to be at peace with it, to know that everything was okay about that. I don't know that I'm going to get a burning conviction of that particular aspect of church history. But we're not supposed to, I don't think. We just need to have a testimony of the essential events. Elder Jensen also says that we need to be prayerful 
and we need to abide by gospel principles, and we need to study sufficiently so our knowledge is more comprehensive. So he's implying that if you study incompletely, that could damage faith. There's the quotation from Alexander Pope that says that you need to drink deeply. Don't stop when it starts bugging you. Dig deeper. Yeah, from my own standpoint, studying church history every day for years and years has absolutely strengthened my testimony. Matt and I are fortunate to work with dozens and dozens of people who have had the same experience. In fact, that's one of the terrific things about working for the church history department is you realize every day that on the one hand, studying church history and on the other, having a spiritual testimony are perfectly compatible. They're not at odds with each other. You know, it's funny. I've gotten to know the historians on the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and I've noticed that everybody is fiercely defensive of Joseph. None of them are like, yeah, you know, wink, wink. It's a legitimate, positive regard for his character and his work. I think that comes from studying the history. And when Matt and I do presentations or talk to our friends and neighbors, it seems like what a lot of people want to know, they, they don't want to take the time to study church history as deeply as we have the opportunity to do. But they want to know, Matt and Eric and you other people that study Joe Smith all day long, have you found anything that's detracted from your faith? Are there documents that you're not able to talk to me about? Is there some smoking gun that you guys have been hiding from us? And I think when we're able to tell them that we have access to all the records that the church has related to Joseph Smith, and the historians have combed through those, and we're publishing those in the Joseph Smith papers without any kind of redactions, without hiding anything. When we're able to tell people that, I think it gives people a lot of comfort. And when we share our own testimonies, I think that's helpful to a lot of people. They don't necessarily need to get into the material themselves. Some people love studying church history and are very enthusiastic about it, but others have other passions. But if if they simply know that we've looked and that we're confident, that's enough for them. It's been helpful to me. When, when you get to know a person, not just a name, and you see what they've studied and how they feel, it is faith-promoting. And sometimes you do ride on someone's coattails for a while as you're coasting through your journey of faith. You know, on the surface, I think we kind of think, well, if this is God's church, then, you know, certainly all aspects of church history will be faith-promoting. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, I'm not, and maybe this will be heretical, I don't know, but I don't know that sometimes every time I study the scriptures that it's faith-promoting. Oh, absolutely not, especially the Old Testament, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's stories in there that I read, and I just think, wow, that, that's that's really weird. But I think when you dig down deeper, maybe it is faith-promoting because you read that the Lord can still do great things through imperfect people, and that helps me to understand better that maybe although I mess up a lot, the Lord can still do great things through me, or at least something through me. And that does build my faith in myself and in my relationship with, with my Heavenly Father. And so I think with church history too, I mean, there are aspects of it that I've looked at in the past that, you know, on the surface of it disturb me. And I think like Eric was saying, I think he put it very well that there are certain parts of church history that maybe I'm not going to get a burning testimony of, but I at least can come to peace with that, 
either I don't understand everything now and I don't understand the purposes behind something, or maybe somebody just made a mistake in the past. I mean, you know, Elder Uchtdorf, when he was in the first presidency, said that in a conference talk that leaders have made mistakes in the past. And uh, so I might not be able to completely reconcile something, but I don't think there's anything that I haven't been able to make peace about, like Eric was saying. I also, you know, my, my study of Joseph Smith especially has only furthered my admiration for him as, as a prophet, as a human being, because I see what he was able to do even with his imperfections and even with just trying to struggle along in life and take care of his family. And that, that for me, has really deepened my respect for him. Eric, could you walk us through your chapter so listeners may get a taste of the type of essays you collected? Terrific. Yes, I'd love to. So the thesis of my essay is a simple one, and that it's that Joseph was remarkably obedient, notwithstanding whatever adversity he was going through, or notwithstanding whatever adversity he might face, specifically because he would be obedient to God's commandments. Now, I know that might sound like a very conventional and maybe a boring approach, but when you get into the details, I think there's a lot of richness there. Joseph was asked to do many things that required extreme sacrifice from him and from his family and from the other saints. As we look back on it from our vantage point, we already know that he's going to obey when he's asked to. So I don't know that we appreciate the faith and the work that it took him to obey in so many different situations. And as I say in the essay, I think we often overlook also how much Emma had to sacrifice to obey the Lord's commandments and to support her husband. The one example I use in the essay of obedience is the well-known episode when Joseph is tarred and feathered. In early March 1832, Joseph had been commanded by the Lord to travel to Missouri to counsel with church members there. And the tarring and feathering happened later that month in Ohio on March 24th. The very next day, as we know, Joseph preaches a Sabbath sermon with some of the mob standing there in the audience. And I know we talk about that a lot, but think about the courage that that would take. And what would I do if I were up all night having my wounds cleaned up? I probably would take the opportunity to miss that particular week of church services myself, but not Joseph. Now, five days after the tarring and feathering, Joseph and Emma's little son, Joseph Murdoch, died. He was only about a year old, and he had been adopted a year earlier. Little Joseph was suffering from measles at the time of the attack, and Joseph and other saints believed that his situation had been made worse by being exposed to the cold night air when the mob threw the door open. So now little Joseph Murdoch has died. Now, what is Joseph the prophet going to do about this commandment that God had given him a few weeks earlier to go to Missouri? Is he going to ask for a delay? Or is he going to say, like I might, that's all the suffering I can put up with, Lord. You've got to make my path easier for me. No, he doesn't do either of those things. He leaves for Missouri on April 1st, just two days after his son had died. And you can imagine the sorrow that he and Emma would have had on parting you can imagine how hard that would have been for Emma to be dealing with her grief without her husband there. In fact, she has to move from Hiram to Kirtland because it's obviously not safe to be in Hiram anymore after that kind of activity. And she has a hard time 
fitting in there and finding someone to stay with. So she's going through a difficult time. Meanwhile, we know from a letter that Joseph writes to Emma during that time that he's also suffering emotionally. Given space considerations, I couldn't go into a lot of detail about what I think it is in Joseph's character that allows him to be so obedient, but I do use a quotation that comes from this letter that Joseph writes to Emma in June of 1832. When Joseph is on his way back from Missouri, he's riding in a stagecoach and the horses bolt, and Newell K. Whitney, who's riding with Joseph, gets injured and he breaks he breaks his leg. So Joseph decides to stay with Newell in this little town called Greenville, Indiana. And that's where Joseph is when he writes this letter to Emma. And in part, Joseph says, I will endeavor to be contented, the Lord assisting me. I will try to be contented with my lot, knowing that God is my friend. In him I shall find comfort. I have given my life into his hands. I count not my life dear to me. I think there's really a lot we can mine out of that short quotation. Joseph wasn't one to waste words. He didn't actually like writing. He didn't write very much at all in his own hand. So I think he meant every word in a way that maybe we don't when we dash off emails and texts and and posts on Facebook. Joseph said in that quote, I have given my life into his hands. He's talking about it almost as if it's a transaction, almost as if he had given his whole life over to God so that when decisions had to be made about whether he was going to follow commandment or not, it wasn't that hard for him because he had already made the decision. And Joseph also says in that quotation, God is my friend and in him I shall find comfort. That means so much to me. I think about God being my friend and helping me in my times of trouble. And Joseph also says, I count not my life dear to me. Again, I think he really meant that. As humans, I think we have a very strong survival instinct and it helps us get through periods of illness and great suffering. And Joseph, of course, had that survival instinct, but he put his own life secondary to wanting to carry out God's commandments. And maybe that's one of the keys to the incredible physical bravery that he had. If you have kind of died once, in a sense, by giving your life over to God, then maybe the fear of physical death doesn't paralyze you like it does for many of us. And then after talking about some of those things, I closed the essay on a personal note. I indicate in the essay that I've been dealing with metastatic cancer for several years, and I talk about how Joseph's example of facing his own adversities has impacted me in my life. The mere fact that Joseph was allowed to suffer so much, I think, is an example. If the Lord's chosen prophet has to go through so many things, why should I think that I should be spared the adversity that comes into my life as well? Was it difficult to be so personal in print? Not really. When you have a stupid disease like cancer, I think one of the few silver linings is that you develop empathy that can help you reach out to other people that are going through something similar. So my hope in getting a little bit personal was maybe there's someone out there that's going through something similar, and maybe my words could encourage them. And that's my hope that my essay would strengthen someone's faith. In some of the essays, simple words or phrases summarize complex insights. Eric, from your chapter, I took the word alacrity, which you used. And yes, I did have to use, (laughs) look that up in the dictionary. Uh, What is alacrity? Let's talk about that a little bit more. 
I remember reading Rough Stone Rolling by Richard Bushman, which was published in 2005. I gobbled it up like a hungry man being washed up in a restaurant and just gobbling everything down. I love that book. But I remember Richard using the word alacrity in the same context, talking about how fast Joseph Smith was to obey. The idea is that when Joseph was given a commandment, he responded with alacrity, which means great speed or swiftness. Matt, from your chapter, I took the phrase, trust in the Lord's timetable. What did you learn about Joseph from studying the expulsion of the saints from Jackson County, Missouri? Yeah, so this is quite an experience and an ordeal that the church goes through and Joseph Smith himself goes through. You know, the saints are commanded in 1831 that they're supposed to build the city of Zion in independence. And they start doing that and work on it for a couple of years. By the summer 1833, there's about 1,200 saints living in Jackson County. And the number of saints there, together with a variety of other issues, leads people living in Jackson County who aren't members of the church to become concerned about the presence of so many saints there. There were several mobs that spring up in the summer of 1833. They attack the printing office of the church. They take Edward Partridge, who's the bishop in Independence, and they tar and feather him. And basically, they get church leaders to agree to leave the county at that time. And so, the the violence stops once church leaders say that they'll leave half of the saints by the end of the year, the other half by April of 1834. But then the saints start to think about, well, you know, we purchased these lands legally. There are lands. We should be able to stay on them. And so they start looking into some legal means to be able to stay in Jackson County. And as they do so, the people in Jackson County catch wind of this and they begin to think, well, they're not going to keep their word. They're going to stay in the county. And so this leads to more mobs springing up in the fall of 1833 that eventually culminates in the church being expelled from the county. Now, for church members and for Joseph Smith, this was really difficult because They were thinking again in their minds, this is something the Lord told us to do. We did our best to do it. Why didn't he protect us? Why did he allow those mobs to drive us from the county? And Joseph Smith even wondered about this. And he asked the Lord about why he allowed the saints to be expelled from Jackson County and how they were supposed to get back to their lands. And in a letter that Joseph writes to Edward Partridge in December of 1833, Joseph tells Edward that he's asked the Lord these questions and the Lord isn't answering him. He says, the only thing that the Lord is telling him is, be still and know that I am God. And so, at a time when Joseph, I think, desperately felt that he needed direction from the Lord, he was not getting that direction. And he had to wait for a period of time before that direction came. Now, the direction does finally come. Section 101 in the Doctrine and Covenants is the answer to Joseph's two questions. And so, he does eventually receive that answer. But I think this event for Joseph taught him, and it teaches me when I read about it, that there will be times when the Lord won't answer us and where we'll have questions and he's going to rely on us to just move forward with the light that we have. And when it comes time for him to reveal further things, he will do that. But until that time, we need to be still and trust that he is God and that he knows what he's doing. 
again, this is 1833. It's about three years after the church is organized. And I think it's an important lesson that Joseph learns in that instance, that he's not always going to understand why the Lord allowed something to happen or why the Lord works in some way. But if he trusts God, then he can have peace in those moments and still be able to do what he's asked to do. I had the opportunity to distribute a few copies of this anthology to listeners. So for the next part of this interview, I'm going to share questions and insights submitted from these listeners. One listener noted, We as Latter-day Saints sometimes compartmentalize scripture and history. We might know a scripture mastery verse or a familiar episode from the past, but we sometimes struggle to place those within a larger context. A number of chapters in this book emphasize a kind of big picture approach to church history and understanding the development of teachings and doctrines. How is this helpful as we apply what we learn from the Joseph Smith papers into our own lives and faith? I think one way that it's helpful, at least for me, is that it helps me to see that the Lord operates in the same way with prophets as he does with all of us. And what I mean by that is that, you know, usually the way that we learn is what the Lord tells us in the scriptures, that we learn line upon line, precept upon precept. We don't know everything at once. And so we grow in our understanding and our learning about gospel principles as we study more, as we gain more experience, as we deal with situations that arise when you take a big picture look at the, especially the development of doctrine um, in the church during Joseph Smith's lifetime, you can really see that happening. Sometimes I think we feel that when Joseph came out of the sacred grove at the age of 14, that he knew everything, or that when he organized the church, that he knew everything about what was going to happen. And that's just not the case. I mean, he progressed line upon line as well. His understanding of priesthood, authority, and priesthood keys develops over time. And it develops, again, as he gets new experiences, he asks different questions of the Lord as there's new situations that arise. You can see that the Lord didn't reveal everything to Joseph all at once, but that he let Joseph struggle at times. He let Joseph wrestle with questions himself and try to figure out things on his own before giving him light and knowledge. And that's just how the Lord works with all of us. I think Elder Bednar had a conference talk where he talked about the spirit of revelation, and he compared it to either a light switch being turned on, to the sun coming up, Uh, in the morning, or to a foggy day. And so there's times when we do get that immediate knowledge, you know, which is like the light switch turning on. There's times when the light comes fairly quickly, but it's kind of more gradually as with the sunrise. But then Elder Bednar says that for most of the time for him, and I think this is right for all of us, it's more like a foggy day where we have just enough light so that we can keep moving, but we don't see the end from where we're at but the Lord will continue to direct us as we move forward. And so we see that with Joseph Smith's life, with the development of doctrine during his life. And for me, that's important because then I think it gives us a more accurate picture of what it was like to be Joseph as a prophet, how the Lord worked with him, and how the Lord directed him. Eric, do you have anything to add to that? One of the other big picture treatments, if you will, that comes out of the book is from Norm Gardner's essay, 
which traces the development of the doctrine of baptism for the dead. Norm starts his essay by talking about the death of Joseph's older brother Alvin in 1823. So what does that event have to do with the restoration of baptism for the dead, which isn't announced until 17 years later? Well, as Norm explains in the essay, when Alvin died as a young man, Joseph and his family were upset that the preacher at Alvin's funeral said that Alvin had gone to hell because he hadn't been baptized into any church. So that concern about the fate of his brother's soul after death was planted in Joseph at least by 1823. Joseph doesn't get introspective that much, so we mostly have to draw inferences from the outside. But that concern has to have been something that he thought about and that motivated him over the years. We know that many of the revelations came in direct response to questions that Joseph asked. So maybe it's possible that Joseph prayed and searched specifically for answers that had to do with redemption for the dead. I really like this idea that something that was bad that had happened to Joseph and his family, namely the death of Alvin, is answered in time all these years later by something good that happened, the restoration of the doctrine of salvation for the dead. And if I could get personal again real quickly, in junior high and high school, I didn't have the greatest experience. I did fine in my classes, but socially I didn't fit in at all and I had very few friends. Later in life, when I made lots of friends and deeper friendships, it almost felt special and surprising to me that I made friends. Even now when someone shows genuine friendship to me, it feels novel almost, and I really appreciate it. And I think the negative experience I had when I was younger has become a blessing in my life and a strength, and I think I'm able to empathize with people that don't fit in as well. And so I think part of the point I'm getting at is when you look at the restoration as it unfolded, you see kind of what Patrick Mason was getting at in your recent interview with him. He talked about how the unfolding restoration is a way of restoring us as human beings and as society. The restoration is in part an answering of our questions and a healing of our broken hearts by our merciful Lord. Sometimes maybe that tissue that's been injured and that gets repaired is actually stronger than had it not been injured in the first place. That's an application that, that I've made by thinking about church history as a whole rather than looking at just little snippets of time. The way you approached this as editors, where you just sent out some very brief guidelines for authors of various backgrounds to write, could have ended up in chaos. You could have had, you could have had the whole spectrum of essays. But I was pleased to notice that they do tend to work together to bring forth common elements. Eric mentioned earlier in the interview the four essays on the first vision. None of them say this happened and then this happened and then this happened, like the church history account and the Pearl of Great Price. They come at it from different angles. And then as a reader, we bring in our knowledge from the Pearl of Great Price and they add it to these different perspectives. One listener commented, one thing that jumped out from the various chapters in Joseph Smith's life is the genuine belief he had in his experiences. 
the historical record supports Joseph and his followers as genuine believers who truly thought they'd experienced divine manifestations. Joseph thought he was a prophet. Latter-day Saints may not think that's earth-shattering. However, this is kind of a big deal from a historical perspective because it leads us to ask ourselves why they thought they'd had these experiences. There may be a number of reasons, but it makes the faith-based answer, because the divine manifestations were real, less crazy than it might seem at first glance. Matt, what do you think are the implications of this for the historical narrative? So I think some have looked at Joseph Smith and criticized him as being an, an imposter, as trying to pull one over on people. But I don't think that that really comes out from the historical record. I think Joseph appears in the record as being very genuine in what he says, that he really believed that he experienced what he said he experienced. And I think this comes out in Ron Barney's essay in the book where he talks about Joseph as an authentic person. And that one reason why people were drawn to him is because they could tell that he was sincere in what he was saying. And that makes me think there was a gentleman who was not a member of the church who observed Joseph giving a discourse in Washington, D.C. in 1840. This man was a journalist. He was in Washington, D.C. as a correspondent, and he wrote a letter to his wife about this discourse that Joseph Smith gave. And he gave a description of Joseph Smith to his wife. And again, he has no reason to depict Joseph in either a positive or a negative light. He doesn't really know Joseph. I'm sure he had heard reports about the Mormon prophet, but doesn't know very much else about him. But in his description to his wife, one of the things that he said is that that Joseph was sincere, that he came across as being sincere in what he was saying. And so I think that gives us insights into why people followed Joseph Smith, because I think they experienced that sincerity, that authenticity from him. We talked earlier about Joseph as an imperfect person, and Joseph never depicted himself as anything but an imperfect person. He said on several different occasions um, in discourses that he gave, that he wasn't perfect, and that the saints shouldn't expect him to be perfect, because he was a human being. And on one occasion, he said, if you expect me to be perfect, then I should expect you to be perfect. And so, I think that also kind of plays into it as well, is that he didn't depict himself as somebody who was above everyone else, you know, uh, on a higher spiritual plane than everyone else, because he had received these visitations and visions. But he depicted himself as someone who had been called of God to do a work, that he was trying his best to do this work to the best of his ability. And I think that really resonated with a lot of people. Contributor James Goldberg shared, In the church today, we tend to remember Joseph Smith in broad strokes. A few key moments, Joseph praying in the sacred grove, shut in a Missouri prison, in Nauvoo preaching in the open air. But 200 years have left the lived details of that work fuzzy. We don't actually remember the stress and sweat it took to bring together the real individual people who gathered. It's there, where the rubber hits the road, that I am most fascinated by Joseph Smith. Then he asks, what sort of emotional work 
did it take to keep the early church together? In his essay, James is exploring kind of what I was trying to get at in mine. In my essay, I wanted to look at what kind of work it meant for Joseph to be obedient. We know he's obedient, but what does that look like in more detail? James also wants to look under the hood, if you will, at what was required of Joseph emotionally to lead the church. In his essay, James discusses this heart-wrenching situation from the 1830s where there's a teenage girl who was being harshly disciplined by her father and by her stepmother, and some church members report this physical abuse to church leaders, and so a high council is convened, and Joseph Smith participates in that. James makes the point that getting the answer right in this particular situation was probably impossible. There weren't child abuse laws or protective agencies at that time, so there's no one that's going to call the police or social services to put the parents in jail or to take the daughter away. The only thing that the high council could do is decide whether or not to withdraw fellowship from those parents. But James asks, if the church withdraws fellowship from the parents, is that actually any better for the daughter or not? Maybe it actually makes it worse for the daughter. So James's argument is not about what the right decision was, but his point is that no matter what, Joseph is involved there at the ground level. He's talking to these people. He's trying to figure out how to help in this situation. And I think that particular example is a symbol for the many other serious problems and challenges that Joseph would have been involved with. Brett Dowdle's essay in the book also looks at what was required of Joseph emotionally. Brett's essay is situated in August of 1841, when several people that are close to Joseph Smith die. He loses his brother, Don Carlos Smith. And then only a week later, Joseph and Emma have a son who's also named Don Carlos who dies. He's only 14 months old. And then within a couple more weeks after that, Robert Thompson dies, and he's a close friend and associate of Joseph's. And you get a sense of Joseph's anguish over these deaths in a letter that he writes in late August. In the letter, he talks about Nauvoo as a, quote, deathly sickly hole. And he adds, in fact, we are in the midst of death. Joseph doesn't talk negatively like that very much. So for him to say deathly sickly whole, I think that reflects the grief that he felt. And you can almost feel some frustration in there, some, some anger maybe. But as Brett points out, Joseph has to keep leading the church. So on the morning of August 16th, Joseph goes to the burial for his little son, Don Carlos. But later that same day, without taking a break, Joseph goes to a church conference. And it's at this conference where significant responsibility is transferred to the Twelve to lead the church. So it seems to me that some of the emotional work that Joseph was doing was actually subordinating his own emotional well-being so that he could continue to lead the church. There's another essay in the book that also explores Joseph's emotion, both his sadness and his joys, and that's the essay by Jay Perry. And Jay writes about Joseph as, quote, a man of deep and tender feelings. And the essay really shows you a lot of different situations where we see Joseph's real emotions coming out. For example, when Joseph is in jail in Missouri in November 1838, he writes a letter and he talks about the, quote, great anxiety that he's feeling. And he says, quote, my heart bleeds for the brethren and sisters. So those are some brief examples that I think show the emotional work that Joseph was doing. 
his role necessarily meant that he had to work with all kinds of people that had various weaknesses. And he experienced, just like we do, all the joys and the agony and the frustration that come with trying to work together with people to accomplish something greater. I think we all do this kind of work in our families, in marriages, with kids, with parents, in our wards and, and co-workers. When you want to preserve the relationship, you can't just say goodbye to the problem and excuse yourself from it. You have to solve the problems of the day, but while preserving and hopefully even strengthening the relationship. So Joseph had all that kind of work to do, but maybe it was on a bigger scale because he was also trying to build a church as well as to build friendships in his own individual family. I like that. I have a an acquaintance who compares the early church to a small business startup in the Silicon Valley. There were a few men who started at the nexus of this, and they all started collaborating together. And then one kind of naturally took the lead, and that was Joseph Smith in the church. And that didn't not have ramifications as some people lost power. There was a lot of emotion going on. There was a lot of infusion of new ideas, like the law of consecration. Okay, Joseph has a revelation on the law of consecration. Now let's get down to the nuts and bolts of how it's practiced. And I don't think we realize that, you know, he only had the same number of hours in the day that we do, but he was being approached by all these people who are joining this growing body and they're saying, okay, let's live the law of consecration. What does that mean? Someone just came up and took, you know, my pocket watch. Does that mean that's how it's supposed to function? And so he has to figure out these little things calm the ruffled feathers. Do you want to, you've studied this period a lot. Do you want to make any comments on it, Matt? Yeah, so that's an interesting way of, of depicting the, the early years of the church, because you do see episodes where Joseph has to deal with, well, who's who's really in charge here? You know, when you have Hiram Page, who's getting revelations through a seer stone, you know, about where the city of Zion is supposed to be located. And Oliver Cowdery and the Whitmers are all thinking, yeah, this is great. You know, he's he's getting good revelations too. And then Joseph has to deal with, well, wait a second, you know, can we all get revelations for the church? And if we can, then doesn't that create some chaos? And so he goes to the Lord for direction and the Lord says, you know, the prophet, the one who's appointed as the prophet is the one who gets revelations. And so you see some of these instances early on where they're trying to work out how is all this going to work. And this gets back to the point of, you know, seeing kind of a big picture and a line upon line approach to how doctrines revealed that, you know, they're kind of working these things out as they go and a little bit through trial and error and some through revelations from the Lord. And they're trying to figure out. What does it mean to be a prophet and to lead a church? A listener noted that these chapters helped him see that prophets are to some degree creatures of their culture and surroundings. Matt, what did you learn from Joseph Smith's life about the nature of prophethood and revelation within specific contexts? I think one thing that's interesting to me is I think the Lord calls people as prophets 
And these people have their kind of specific interests and the things that mean a lot to them. And so those are the types of things that they go to the Lord to in prayer. And those are the types of things that the Lord gives them revelation about. So, for example, I mean, outside of Joseph Smith's lifetime, you have Joseph F. Smith, who gets the revelation about um, the Spirit's preaching in the spirit world. And why does he get that revelation? It doesn't just come to him out of the blue. It comes to him because he's just experienced the death of one of his sons. And there's a flu epidemic going on around the world and World War One's going on and death is just pervasive in the culture. And so he thinks about that and he ponders about it. And that's when the revelation comes. You even see it with, you know, President Nelson when we talk about the the name of the church and the importance of emphasizing Jesus Christ and not calling ourselves Mormons. I mean, that's something that's been dear to President Nelson's heart for a number of years. He talked about it, I think, back in 1993 when he was an apostle. And so when he becomes prophet, that's one of the things he's concerned about. So that's one of the things that he goes to the Lord uh, to get information about. And you see the same things with Joseph Smith. I think Eric's touched on this before, that because of the deaths of loved ones like Alvin, like his children, he's concerned about death. He's concerned about family, too. I mean, Joseph's family meant a lot to him. They were a very close-knit family. He loved his siblings. He loved his own family uh, with Emma and his children. And so I think he naturally wondered, what happens to these relationships after this life. And this is something that, that you touch on in your essay, Laura, is how do we keep these relationships and what forms do they take in the next life? And so I think that's why you have Joseph getting revelations on baptism for the dead. If it had been someone else, you know, who was called as a prophet who didn't experience those things, would they have asked those questions and received that revelation then? I don't know. Maybe they would have. Maybe the Lord would have revealed it regardless. But I do think that The prophets have things that they've experienced and things that are going on in their lives, things that are going on in the culture that they are living in that lead them to ask certain questions of the Lord. Uh, We see it with the word of wisdom, too. I don't think necessarily that would have come about had there not been a temperance movement going on in the United States. And if Emma hadn't been concerned about the tobacco use in the school of the prophets, then Joseph probably wouldn't have asked that question. And so I think the Lord places people as prophets, you know, because he, he knows the end from the beginning. He sees it all. And I think he kind of knows what kinds of questions they're going to ask so that he can reveal things as, as he moves along. I have to admit, when I got that email that asked me for <laughs> a contribution to this collection, I've spoken to Eric about this, but I haven't talked to you about that. I was a little surprised. I thought, oh, you meant to send this to my husband because my husband, he really has a deep connection to Joseph Smith because of the years he studied. And I would probably fall more in the category of having a complex relationship with Joseph Smith. But I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity that I had been given. And I joined the process a little bit late. So I I tried to think, okay, how can I do this assignment without really engaging? <laughs> so I thought, well, let, let's do something safe, right? Let's not get personally involved. And every safe topic that I suggested had already been taken. 
And so I had to dig a little bit deeper and look at the context surrounding some of his revelations, in particular, the continuation of families that I've perhaps struggled with a little bit in my family because of our life situation and changing marital dynamics. And thank you for giving me this opportunity because I was able to look at the documents that I had read in a different light and say, okay, what was going on in his life? Eric mentioned the emotional work that Joseph had to do. He was empathetic and close to not only his congregants, but his friends. I think one of the chapters was Joseph Smith, a loyal friend. When Hiram Smith's wife dies and Hiram is just inconsolable, unable to function, and he's left with these children he doesn't know how to take care of, and his friend Robert Thompson dies and leaves a widow. He's wondering, what am I going to do to help both these people? And his solution involves polygamy. When I took the whole context of that situation into consideration, I had more charity for what these people were involved in. Eric, I already asked you about what you had learned about Joseph Smith from working with these essayists. Matt, in conclusion, I want you to answer that same question. You know, there are a lot of insights that you get when you read things that other people have written. Again, like Eric said, we've been so steeped in the Joseph Smith papers that I don't think there is much new information that comes. But the insights that come, just from people's personal experiences and the way that they look at Joseph Smith because of those experiences, I think are, are profound, at least for me, they were. We've touched a little bit on a variety of the essays and kind of how we've gained new insights from them. And that's one thing that I love about history is that each generation brings a different perspective and they ask different questions about the documents in the past. And so we get new insights as those new questions are asked. Generally, I think every single essay in the volume brought me a different insight into Joseph that I hadn't had before. I love what you just said. We're asking different questions than we have in the past. And just that change of direction can help us get deeper insights. Well, there's 41 essays, so we couldn't touch on all of them. I highly suggest this anthology if you want to try to connect with Joseph on a new level. Eric, do you have anything to add to what Matt said? I wanted to say on behalf of Matt Godfrey and Matt Groh and myself, again, how thankful we are to everybody that contributed to the anthology, including you, Lara. And as you were talking about your own essay and your own experience that led you to write about that, it just occurred to me how every different essayist is coming from a different background. So necessarily, they're going to be attracted to some different aspect of the history. 10 years from now, if all the same 41 people wrote again, we might come up with completely different essays because the circumstances of our lives have changed. So that is supporting what Matt was saying about how going back to history again and again teaches us new lessons. Besides 
hoping that these essays will inform and inspire people. I think they provide a kind of example that I hope other people will follow. How can you take all this dense information that's in the Joseph Smith papers and make it relatable to a general audience? I hope there are some examples there that other people can follow in their own writing, maybe in magazine articles, maybe in their church talks and lessons to draw out points of the history that can inspire and inform people who are regular Latter-day Saints. Thank you so much for that thought and also for everything you shared today, both Matt and Eric. I appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for having us. I've enjoyed it. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices. <laughs>